me laugh, uh, for philosophy sounds, you know, like a very serious and very weighty subject. It is really nothing less than worldly wisdom. That's what philosophy is. It's worldly wisdom. And in our last study together in 1 Corinthians, we read where God speaks of the wisdom of this world, asking this rhetorical question, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now, the word philosophy just means love of wisdom. That's all it means, love of wisdom. If somebody says they're a philosopher, we might be impressed by the title, but it just means one who loves wisdom, and in particular, worldly wisdom, as opposed to the wisdom of God's Word. And so in the ancient Greek world, the love of wisdom was one of the driving forces in Greek culture and society. And we see that as Paul came to Mars Hill in Athens, and we see there his encounter with the philosophers of that city. Let's look in Acts chapter 17 for a moment. Acts chapter 17, and uh, Paul comes into this city. He is struck uh, by the idolatry that he sees all around him, and uh, he makes his way to uh, Mars Hill, and uh, verse Uh, 18 of this passage says this, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics, now notice that word, encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Others some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We should know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Now, Notice some of the philosophers that were prominent at that time, in that place, during that period, were men who are described as the Stoics and the Epicureans. These men represented two ends of the philosophical spectrum. But notice how that despite centuries of philosophical debate, men were none the wiser as to the truth of God. The wisdom of men did not lead men to the truth and knowledge of God. And so in that respect, you know, these uh, philosophers who would argue various views back and forth reveal that. And in particular, in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, Paul highlights that the world by wisdom knew not God. The world by wisdom knew not God. And nowhere is this more clearly demonstrated than on Mars Hill. Here it is objectified because there the philosophers of the day erected an obelisk in which they inscribed upon it to the unknown God. So when we get to Colossians chapter 2, Paul then has this word of admonition for those who are taken in by worldly wisdom, uh, those who might subscribe to the philosophies of this world. And he says, beware 
lest any man spoil you through the philosophy and feign deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of this world. Beware lest any man spoil you, Colossians 2, 8, through philosophy and feign deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now I want to break this verse up for you in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. And let's start with that first thought. Beware lest any man spoil you. And that phrase means to lead you away, to take you captive, uh, to hold you hostage, uh, to make you booty. And of course, we've had a very recent example of that kind of thing on October 7th when the people of southern Israel were attacked by Hamas and innocents were taken uh, at gunpoint and uh, kidnapped, carried away hostage and held uh, to ransom. Now, of course, Paul is not speaking here about a physical capture. He's speaking here about a spiritual capture. And that's the danger of man's wisdom. Man's wisdom has the capacity to entrap you, to lead you down a blind alley, as it were, and to hold you there. So Paul says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. And the Greek language is more definite than that. It says, beware lest any man spoil you through the philosophy. So he has a particular philosophy in view. And uh, the philosophy that Paul is targeting is something known as Gnosticism. Now, I will deal with that in a few moments and speak about that. But it is a worldly wisdom. It was a philosophy of secrets. And the idea that you had to somehow enter into something that was unknown uh, to others. And so he says in verse 3 of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, you don't need this particular philosophy in your life. The Gnostics taught that to know the secrets was to experience knowledge and salvation, and they held a very different view of the Creator God, of Jesus, of the cross, of salvation than Paul did, or the New Testament teaches. So he carries on. Beware lest anyone spoil you through the philosophy and feign deceit. Now, if philosophy stresses what is taught, then feign deceit depicts how and why it was taught. What is taught uh, is vain. It's empty. It's hollow. It contains no real substance with which to edify the hearer. It appealed to the pride of men. Philosophy appeals to the pride of men. You know, if you ever listen to philosophers, you know, waxing lyrical about the great philosophies of the ancient world, and you uh, look at their demeanor, very often they're very pompous, quite arrogant, full of themselves, showing off their knowledge of Greek and of Greek culture and the ancient world, and thinking they're bamboozling their hearers with all of these intricate arguments. And so it's a feigned deceit. Paul saw it for what it was. It was a way in which man could puff himself up. It was a means whereby men could be made to look 
more intelligent than their peers. And the men on Mars Hill thought themselves better than the people at the foot of Mars Hill who were absolutely soaked in idolatry because they had argued beyond that and were thinking about bigger issues, the great philosophies of their day. Paul says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and feign deceit after the tradition of men. I get that. The Gnostics brought with them all kinds of traditions which were contrary to the truth, which ensnared believers in Paul's day. Now, we need to be careful about the traditions of men. Some traditions may be very helpful. They may be very beautiful. They may be part of a culture. They uh, may be part of, a, of a, an ecclesiastical tradition. And we can overlook it and say, well, that's just the way they do it. But other traditions are contrary to the word of God and are detrimental to the truth of God. Look with me in the Gospel of Mark at the words of Jesus. Mark chapter 7. And notice this scathing rebuke from the lips of the Savior upon the leaders of Israel in his day. Mark chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashing hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees... And all the Jews, except they wash their hands often, eat not, holding, notice, the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders? Not the word of God, but the tradition of men but eat bread with unwashing hands. And he answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah the prophet, uh, well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, for it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments or traditions of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is korban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And he suffered him no more to do aught for his father or his mother. Making, now notice what the Lord says here, making the word of God of non-effect through your traditions, which ye have delivered, and many such things do ye. And when he called all the people unto them, he said unto them, hearken unto me every one of you that and understand. Now, let's stop there. He, you know, he's telling us that here were these men in Judaism who had concocted various traditions, various ways of doing things, various laws and bylaws that they were insistent that others bow to and surrender to 
And the Lord comes along and he says, you know, the problem with you people is that you put the tradition of men above the word of God. And what you do is you make the word of God of non-effect. Now, I feel that in this discussion we're having on Calvinism, sometimes that's the case. Because what happens is a lot of folks like to appeal to the church fathers. And they'll say, well, this is what the church fathers believed. Actually, if you go and read the church fathers, you'll find that prior to Augustine, none of them believed in Calvinism. None of them. But nevertheless, they'll make these appeals and they will suggest that the church fathers are an authority. That if somehow you depart from the words of the church fathers, you're departing from orthodoxy. And so what they're doing here is they're making the tradition of men greater than the word of God. And really, they are making the word of God of non-effect. You see, the only time that the church fathers have anything to say that is of any worth whatsoever is if and when they say something that is clearly in agreement with the word of God. It's the only time that you have any validity in referring to the church fathers. So Jesus teaches us that some belief systems render the clear truths of God's word void and deprive it of its force and of its authority. Now, now we're no longer looking at what God says, but we're looking to what man says. Then in Colossians 2.8, Paul continues. If you want to look back there again, he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through the philosophy and feign deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world. Now, the word rudiments is interesting. It means one in a row or one of a series. So it's like the ABCs, one, two, three. There's a certain sequence. There's a certain logic to things. It's like the basic elements of the periodical, periodic table. You know, there's, there's a framework there. Uh, it's like the basic elements of knowledge. And so the philosophy of Gnosticism in this instance brings with it an order of things, a sequence of things that within the framework of that philosophy is logical and one idea builds upon the last idea which then leads into the next idea. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about the rudiments of the world. So why does any of this matter in a discussion of Calvinism? Here's why. Because Calvin was absolutely saturated, saturated in the teachings of Augustine, and Augustine was soaked in Greek philosophy. That's why it matters. Now, Calvin said this, Augustine is so holy within me that I could write my entire theology out of his writings. This is what he said. Augustine is so holy within me that I could write my entire theology, everything that I've written, out of his writings. So what we're saying to you is that Calvinism isn't really Calvinism at all. It's Augustinianism. And that's really important. It's Augustinianism. Now you say, well, who is Augustine? 
Augustine was the bishop of a North African uh, seaport by the name of Hippo, now in uh, Algeria, and he lived around really from 396 to, to 430. He was a theologian, he was a philosopher, he was a writer, and he was a rhetorician. In other words, he enjoyed a jolly good debate and argument. He is considered as one of the fathers of the Western Church. Now, the Eastern Church does not recognize him as a church father, but the Western Church does, and in particular, Roman Catholicism does, because he is deemed to be, in Roman Catholic tradition, a doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, we're going to say more about Augustine next week, and I hope you'll come and listen to what went on in the mind and in the ministry of this man, Augustine, because he's a very important figure in church history, and it's essential that we understand something about him before we go into the more finer details of Calvinism. But here's the deal. Calvinism came out of Reformed theology, and Reformed theology is really the, it was really the birth child of the ministry of the great reformer, Martin Luther. Now, question, what was Martin Luther before he understood justification by faith. What was he? Answer, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. In other words, Luther was very much engaged with the writings of Augustine. And as we'll see, Augustine was very much engaged with the philosophies of ancient Greece. John Calvin, we've already quoted, was unquestionably a devotee by his own testimony of Augustine. Calvin also came from a Catholic background. He was a devotee of Augustine. So Augustine was the one who theologically developed the tulip, the five points of Calvinism. They're not really five points of Calvinism. They're actually five points of Augustinianism. Um, You know, a number of years ago, I bumped into a trainee priest, in Dublin. And uh, he was a young man. I was a young man. He was in his 20s. I was in my 20s. I don't know why he came to our house, but he came to our house for some reason. And uh, I got involved in a discussion with him about spiritual things. And I began to challenge him about some of the teachings of the Roman Catholic faith. And in the course of that conversation, I started quoting various scriptures, whereupon he stopped me. And he said, oh, he says, there's no point in us discussing the Bible. He says, We don't learn the Bible. Now, this was a young man who was training at Maynooth College, which at that point was turning out 400 priests a year for the Catholic priesthood. I mean, it was phenomenal in terms of the provision it was making for the Roman Catholic Church in in regards to clergy. And so I I was kind of taken aback because I didn't know anything about what they covered in their courses. And I assumed that they would have some biblical defense of Catholicism. And so I, I was taking it back when he says, oh, you know, we don't, dis- we don't study the Bible. We don't, I don't know anything about Bible verses. And I said, well, what do you study? He says, well, we study Plato and we study philosophy. And I was like just amazed. I mean, I was honestly amazed. And I thought, why in the world would somebody who's going to be a church leader of some kind spend his years in college studying Greek philosophy. 
Because, friends, Catholicism is a marriage of Greek theology, of Greek philosophy, and Christian theology. That's what it is. And it's mostly Greek philosophy. So Calvin, you know, did not necessarily derive his understanding of this theological system from an independent study of the Scriptures. That's important to know. He gathered these ideas from the writings of Augustine, and Augustine brought them into play by means of pagan philosophies that had engaged his mind long before he converted to uh, Christianity. So in particular, he drew on four key philosophical beliefs, the beliefs of Stoicism, and uh, Stoicism, and uh, Gnosticism, and uh, Manichaeism, and Neoplatonism. Now, we're going to talk about all of these four in a little bit, Uh, but those are the four primary philosophies that have a bearing on our discussion. Now, I'm pretty sure (laughs) you folks are thinking, oh, I don't want to study all these isms. I don't, you know, and to be honest with you, I don't want to study them either, okay? Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not inclined to, you know, I'm, I'm no, I have no desire to get into the nitty-gritty of these things. I've never studied them in any great detail, but I've read enough about them uh, to know a little bit, uh, particularly with this particular uh, subject that we're dealing with, respect to, with respect to their ideas on God, on man, and salvation that laid the foundation for Calvinistic theology. So tonight, I want to, and we're not going to take very long, I just want you to bear with me as we think about these four areas of philosophy. And the first of those is Stoicism. Stoicism. Now, the Stoic philosopher, Seneca the Younger, said this, the fates lead the willing and drag the unwilling. Now, I want you to notice that statement he made. The fates, of course, he's not believing in God necessarily, but he believes in some power in the universe There's some power, he's calling it fate, that leads the willing and drags the unwilling. Now, here is what we refer to as irresistible grace in its embryonic form. It's stated there by Seneca the Younger. And in Stoicism, it was believed that people were incapable of making wise choices because their thinking processes were corrupt and faulty. That was the belief of Stoicism. So fate compelled them to do whatever they did. And they used this analogy. The analogy was of a dog being tied to a horse and cart. And the the statement was that the dog has free will. He may choose to follow the cart or he may choose to be dragged by the cart. Now, that was the Stoic definition of free will. It was free will, but non-free will, okay? So the dog could walk behind the cart, or the dog could say, well, I'm not going to walk behind the cart, in which case it would be dragged by the cart to the same destination, all right? Um, So, in other words, you were free, but not actually free. Stoics also believe that every event in the universe was predetermined, or if we might use some Calvinistic vocabulary, decreed. It was decreed by the fates. Uh, Augustine taught this same idea. 
teaching that even if a leaf falls to the ground, it does so by the predetermined plan of God so that its exact location was determined in eternity past. And when the wind blows and pushes that leaf three or four feet away, that too was decreed by God in eternity past. And on and on it goes. He taught that the very neck muscles of two roosters fighting one another in a cockfight were predetermined by God. That God decided at that moment in that fight which muscles, which cock, which rooster would use. And he said in his personal, religious, and philosophical journey, and this is very important, he never once doubted the doctrine of stoic, stoic providence. Now, we're not for one moment suggesting that there's no such thing as the providence of God. We spent the whole week last week uh, discussing that very subject in the book of Esther. And uh, Pastor uh, Ferguson did a masterful job uh, showing us uh, how that God uh, foreknew and, and in some cases worked it out so that the Jews could uh, escape the genocide planned by Haman. But what we do deny is the Stoic doctrine of providence. Remember, the Stoics were among those men that Paul encountered at Mars Hill. These were people he witnessed to overlooking the city of Athens. And what does the Bible say? Does it say that Paul came up and was impressed by these men and embraced their philosophy and thought that they had some great ideas? Or does it say that, God, that Paul was perplexed by them to such an extent that he rebukes their superstition? He rebukes their religious ideas. He certainly didn't accept anything they had to say or receive from their hand the wisdom of this world. In fact, the Bible says, Blessed is the man that walketh, what? Not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. So far from deriving truth from philosophy, which is evolved through various arguments of men and traditions of men, we are to shun such wisdom as the wisdom of this world, which is foolishness with God. In fact, the book of Proverbs says, in relation to ungodly and worldly influences, enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. Now, that was not what Augustine did. He said he never once doubted the doctrine of Stoicism. So far from shunning it, he embraced it. The second philosophy I want you to think about is Neoplatonism. And this second great philosophical influence also clouded Augustine's thinking. This philosophy was built on many of the false notions of Stoicism. Plotinus, the founder of Neoplatonism, uh, denied that man was in any sense made in the image of God, 
and that a person in a human body did not have any kind of free will. Only when the soul was freed from the body could a man be absolutely free to reason aright. So he says, as long as you're alive in this body, you have no ability to think straight. So how can a man then make a right choice about anything? Well, man's free will is then restored. Listen to me now. How's man's free will restored? By divine infusion. God has to bring him alive in some sense. Okay? In other words, God gifts this man now with the ability to make right decisions. This is an early, early form of the idea that faith is the gift of God. You know, we read in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What does the it refer to? You see, I would take it that it's the salvation is the gift of God. But our Calvinist friends believe it's the faith that is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. That God regenerates you and then he gives you the ability to repent and exercise faith. Now, that was part and parcel of Neoplatonist uh, philosophy. And so, the idea is that man, because of his corruption, cannot make a good decision on his own. He must then be divinely infused. We would use the term in Christianity, regenerated, and then gifted with faith in order uh, to proceed. Yet the Bible is clear uh, right from the outset that, first of all, man is made in the image of God, and, and I want you to get this, he still retains the image of God. He still retains the image of God. Look in Genesis chapter 9 for a moment, and verse 6. This is important. You see, Neoplatonism denied that man was in any sense reflective of the image of God. But the Bible teaches us quite the opposite. Chapter 9 and verse 6 of Genesis. And this is where human government is instituted. And the statement is made, verse 6, to Noah, Whoso sheddeth man's blood... By man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Now that second part of that verse would have no force whatsoever if man no longer bore the image of God. He's reduced to the level of, a, of an animal and therefore could rightfully and, and without any, uh, any kind of penalty uh, be, uh, kill one another. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. Notice what it says. He is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of God. Of the man. Now, that's not to suggest that women aren't made in the image of God. They are. Uh, but this is referring, of course, to a matter of order. But it talks about man being made in the image of God. And James, we're in the book of James, aren't we? Sunday morning, chapter 3 and verse 9. And when we get to this particular passage, you might want to wear a helmet on a Sunday morning. James chapter 3 uh, and verse 9 says this. Uh, Therewith, speaking of the tongue, 
Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. So one of the ways, you know, you have to say, well, in what sense is man made in the image of God? That's the question. How is man made in the image of God? And we could say that man is a tripartite creature, that he's made up of body, uh, of body um, spirit, and soul. But also, one of the ways in which we acknowledge the triunity of God in the human image is in the ability of man to exercise intellect, which only men can do. I don't mean that as opposed to women. <laughs> don't know why Roger's laughing there. I didn't, I'm not suggesting that for one moment, Carl. <laughs> Humans can do intellect, emotion, and will. That's what separates us from the animal kingdom. Man has intellect, emotion, and will. You know, people come along and say to you, you know, dolphins are very smart. Dolphins are the smartest creatures on earth. Really? Have you ever seen a dolphin resolving some algebra? You ever seen a dolphin build a skyscraper? Oh, monkeys, they're really smart. Really? Have you ever seen a monkey, you know, operating, you know, some complicated piece of machinery? Even a typewriter? No, animals can't do this. Intellect belongs to man. Emotion, man has emotion in a sense that other creatures don't. And will, he has volition. That's what makes him in the image of God. Now, Neopolitanism, or Neoplatonism, uh, has this other feature of interest to us, and this is what on our screen, a belief that the so-called reason principle, otherwise known to us as God, desired and created more evil people than good. And that he, and this is the words of the philosophy, he predestined such people to damnation regardless of any choice on their part. Now, we're not reading here Calvin. We're not even reading Augustine. We're reading Plotinus. A belief that so-called reason principle desired and created more evil people than good and that he predestined such people to damnation regardless of any choice in their part. In other words, not only did the reason principle choose some people for salvation, but he actually created and chose some people from, for damnation. Now, in Calvinist thought, this is referred to as double predestination. Not all Calvinists believe in double predestination, but some of them do, many of them do, uh, in which they believe that God, for his own good pleasure, uh, chose some people to be saved and also purposely chose others to be damned for, their own, for his own good pleasure. Now, that is a terrible doctrine. Irrespective of anything else we may cover in this series, that's a terrible doctrine. What's the Bible say? The Bible says that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in damning men. He didn't create men to cast them into hell. The Lord Jesus says that hell was created not for man, but for the devil and his angels. So it's not God's will uh, and his his perfect will that men should be created and and thrust into hell in order that he should have some kind of perverse pleasure out of that. Not at all. And what an indictment that is upon the character of God. But we'll deal with that more as we get into the series. The next philosophy I want you to think about is the one that Paul uh, spoke of, Gnosticism. 
And uh, just as Paul evangelized with the Stoics on Mars Hill, in his epistles he confronted the wisdom or the philosophy of Gnosticism. Now, Valentinus, one leading Gnostic teacher, said that uh, God offered the message of salvation to every human equally. However, only the predetermined elect accept it. <laughs> That's what we call Calvinism. See, John Calvin didn't come up with these ideas. Even Augustine didn't come up with these ideas. These ideas are sucked out of Greek philosophy. I mean, that's, Cal that's pure Calvinism. That's unconditional election. That God specifically chose certain people to accept salvation, and only they could accept it. So the Gnostics believed that God gifted men with the ability to, uh, to think right, and when this happened, then uh, divine grace having implemented the seed, uh, the salvation of those four chosen was uh, compelled upon them uh, by, their, uh, by their now regenerated will. In other words, you have within Gnosticism the notions of unconditional election and irresistible grace. No wonder Solomon said, the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. One more philosophy. Manichaeism. This philosophy evolved out of Gnosticism and it held to a belief in, in what is known as dualism, the doctrine that the universe contains two opposing powers, two opposing forces, one good, one evil, and they cancel each other out. They balance each other in the outworking of the universe. So you get that in Eastern religion with uh, yin and yang, if you've seen that little symbol of yin and yang that's part of Eastern uh, philosophy. Same idea, good and evil. The same idea you sometimes see in Western culture. Uh, I remember when I was a little boy, I used to read a, a comic, I think it was the Sparky, uh, and it had this, it might have been the Dandy or the Beano, I don't know. But anyway, I used to read a, I used to read a comic, and they had this wee comic character, and a boy, and he had a good angel on this shoulder and a bad angel on this shoulder, and the good angel would tell him something, and then the bad angel would counter that, and uh, he had to decide which of the two he was going to go with. Well, that's dualism, okay, in comic form. Uh, so, in this philosophy, the physical is evil, and the spiritual is good. So, to give birth to a child was deemed to be evil. Those who were born had been predetermined by the good power, who did not physically create, or did not create a physical world, to be either elect or damned irrespective of human choice. So again, you have this idea of unconditional election. And like the two previous philosophies, Manichaeism requires that the good power of the universe has to awaken the dead soul of a man who must, by compulsion, respond to his call. So what I'm saying to you is this. When, you, when these doctrines are presented to us, and they're often presented to us as pure Bible, Protestantism, Reformed thinking, whatever you want to call it, what you're listening to is the philosophy. The very thing that Paul told us to beware of. 
Beware, beware lest anyone spoil you through the philosophy. And Augustine was trained in Stoicism. He understood the philosophy of it well. He even accredited his conversion to Christianity as occurring because of his grasp of Neoplatonism. And he spent 10 years of his life as part of a Manichaean sect, learning this stuff. 10 years of his life. You can't come out of that background and not bring some of the baggage with you. You know, I pastored in Dublin. It used to make me smile sometimes. You'd call upon somebody to close the meeting in prayer, and here's how their prayer would go. Lord, we thank you for Father Moore's message this morning. Father Moore, what in the world am I? Am I pre- what, what were they doing? Bringing their baggage with them. Or sometimes I would close in prayer and I'd look up and I'd see somebody do this. In a Baptist church. What's happening there? They're bringing their baggage with them. Now, it's impossible to believe that Augustine, who fully understood Gnosticism, who fully trained in Stoicism, who spent 10 years in a sect that practiced and preached Manichaeism, came out of all of that and was completely uninfluenced by any of it. That is not his testimony. Augustine didn't just bring it, he largely embraced it and he married it to his later understanding of the scriptures. You might say, well, pastor, I don't see how any of this matters. It matters a great deal because Calvin confessed, Augustine is so holy within me that I could write my entire theology out of his writings. It matters because Calvin drew on Augustine and Augustine drew from the ancient Greek philosophers, the kind of men that Paul, when he was on his missionary journeys, witnessed to the Stoics at Mars Hill and the kind of men he wrote about in the Corinthian and Colossian epistles. Let me help you further with this. Many years ago, that when I, when I, well, actually, when I got to the church in England, I met a lady. She was a lovely lady, very nice lady, and she had come out of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And after a while, I found out that she was a substitute Sunday school teacher, and uh, that was all right. I didn't mind that. But then I discovered she didn't believe in hell. Now, why didn't she believe in hell? Because the Bible doesn't teach hell? No, because she had been influenced by Watchtower Doctrine. And she had brought that baggage with her after her profession of faith. (laughs) And then subsequently I removed her from our Sunday school teacher, Rhoda Staff, because, Staff Rhoda, because I couldn't have somebody teaching our children who didn't believe the whole Bible and whose doctrine was colored by their background. Now, Paul said this to the Colossian believers, Beware lest any man spoil you through the philosophy and feign deceit after the tradition of men, 
after the rudiments of this world, after their logic and sequential thinking, and not after Christ. And I think we would be very wise to heed that warning. Now, next week, Lord willing, I'm going to introduce you to Augustine and all the lovely doctrines that he brought into the church. Trust the Lord to bless you tonight.